Are you tired of the weather yet? No. No. It's beautiful out. I wish you could see our place in Idaho. I wish we could see our place in Idaho. There's about uh, 60 inches of snow there. Uh, So I think we probably will be able to go home sometime late spring or early summer. (laughs) Also, it's nice to be upright and taking nourishment again. Thank you for your prayers. Uh, We are doing well. And uh, I had both the flu shot and the pneumonia shot. And I got both. And uh, being an asthmatic on top of that, why uh, things didn't look so good for a while. So, But we're doing much better now. Also, while you think about it, if you've been keeping track with the Grahams, our missionaries in in Uganda, uh, they have a special day tomorrow. They are going to be meeting uh, with the court again tomorrow on Monday. And uh, so pray for Daniel and Rachel uh, as they go about that. I should mention to you that tomorrow there is today here. So this evening, as you think about it, uh, early this evening and through the evening, be praying for them as they uh, go through this process. They really want to be able to accept the outcome. And uh, at the same time, they want to be able to truly adopt Nathan. And so uh, be aware of that. Be praying about that. Let's bow together and pray. Father, thank you today for being a great God, for loving us, for caring about us, for being the God of the impossible. And Father, we thank you that you have brought us into relationship with you and into relationship with each other. And we ask you, Father, as we talk about obedience today, that you would allow us to uh, understand what you want to say to us today. And I realize that what you say to me may be different from what you would say to someone else in the room. So, Father, we want to yield ourselves to you in these moments and allow you to speak to us so that we may be encouraged and motivated spiritually to honor you. So bless us this morning as we spend these moments together. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We do want to talk about obedience. You might remember we're talking about the seven miracles in the Gospel of John. And the first one was uh, the master of quality, where Jesus turned the water into wine. The second one was the master of space. Today we are talking about the master of the Sabbath. And that's very important because this miracle today is an important miracle in the Pharisees' beginning their hatred for Jesus and determining that they are going to put him out of commission. But we're talking about obedience. In fact, the theme for the message this morning is that um, uh, obedience to God, uh, God's power is released through the believer's obedience. And when I speak of the believer's obedience, 
I want to make a clarification. Because when we are talking about obedience in the context of New Testament believers, you understand we're talking about sanctification, not justification. There's a difference between those two. We get saved when we are justified. You don't have to be obedient to anything to get saved. You just have to believe that the gospel, that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, and bang, you are saved. In fact, uh, I was speaking earlier this week that there's a process in this. You know, the Bible says if if you're not saved, you're dead. And dead people don't get up and make decisions. They don't get up and decide to obey somebody uh, or to do the right thing, obviously. When we are talking about obedience here, we're talking about sanctification. The, and sanctification is, we, is defined as spiritual growth in the believer. Uh, sanctification is the translation of the Greek word hagios. Um, it's the same word that is translated holy in the New Testament. Sometimes it's translated holy. Sometimes it's translated uh, sanctify. And so you and I become more and more holy, more and more sanctified, meaning that we become closer to God. We know more of God. We are have a closer relationship with God. We are growing spiritually. And the result of that is, is that we are going to be uh, have more power as far as using God's power is concerned. That's why we're saying God's power is released through the believer's obedience. Um, and this miracle, we will see that this morning. Here's an important concept that I want you to see. The nearer we come to Christ, see, you and I, the whole process of sanctification is how close can I get to the Lord? How well can I know Him? How much can I understand what He wants me to do? And how well do I know His words and His thoughts and His thinking? The nearer we come to Christ, the more useful we're going to be to Him. The more power we will have. That's why this obedience, this sanctification brings us closer to Christ. Therefore, we see more of the power of God displayed because we are so close to Christ. Let me illustrate this way. Suppose you have the mother of all magnets and you stick a nail to that magnet. Then you stick another nail to that nail and another nail to that nail and another one and another one and another. Pretty soon down here someplace, the nail's not going to stick anymore because it's lost its power. But the main power is in this first nail. The closer you get to the magnet, the more power you have. And that's what we're trying to say here with regard to this whole process of sanctification. Remember a week or a couple of weeks ago, I said uh, the goal of the preacher is to strengthen the believer's faith. We want to strengthen your faith. 
It's not about how much theology you know. It's about how well you can trust God and and have this faith relationship with God. That's sanctification. That's uh, coming closer to Christ. So we're going to talk about obedience. So let's take a look at our text. And let me let me read, first of all, the first five verses. You don't have them, but let me tell you what's going on here. In verse 1 of chapter 5 of John, it says this, After these things there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. There were three very important holidays that the Jews celebrated. The first one was Passover. You know, Passover celebrates the exodus out of Egypt. This year, Passover will begin on April 10th. Uh, The next one is Pentecost. And Pentecost is 50 days out from Passover. And Pentecost is the celebration of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. This year begins on May 30. And the third one is the Feast of Tabernacles or uh, the Feast of Booths, sometimes called. Uh, and that celebrates the harvest. Uh, and a Jew would sometimes build a little temporary dwelling in his backyard to be able to celebrate this. And, and that celebrates the harvest. And this year uh, begins on October the 4th. And uh, here's why I'm telling you that. These three celebrations were very significant in the day in which Jesus lived. If a Jewish male lived within 20 miles of Jerusalem, he was obligated by Jewish law to go to Jerusalem and celebrate those uh, feasts in Jerusalem. So Jesus finds himself in Jerusalem. Most commentaries think this is a Passover, uh, uh, but we don't really know for sure. But uh, Jesus is, finds himself in Jerusalem. Verse 2 says, Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, which means um, uh, uh, house of mercy, um, uh, having five porches. Uh, and it says, In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. And then you start a part of the text that is not in our original Greek text. Uh, and I'm going to read it for you. It says, These people were waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord came down at certain seasons in the pool and stirred the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring of the water, stepped into the pool... Uh, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Those words are not in our text. If you look in your Bible, there will be a bracket around them. However, the scribe who put them there had a reason to put them there because in verse 7, when Jesus is talking to this man, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps in before me. So the scribe thought, uh, I need to explain this. So he inserts this little bit in verses uh, uh, 4 and 5 to explain what's going on here. And uh, 
that that's important. You'll find that important in just a little bit, and we'll explain why. So now let's take a look at the text you have in your outline, and we're going to talk about the process of the man's obedience. Let me read from verse 5 on. The man was there who was ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? Underline those words. Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Pick up your bed or get up. Pick up your pallet and walk. Underline that statement. Get up. Pick up your pallet and walk. So let's talk briefly about the ailment of this man. The ailment of the man at the pool of Bethesda. And what was that? The man was a paralytic. He couldn't walk. In fact, we don't know how much of his body was withered. There may have been more of it. Uh, uh, and he was in that condition for 38 years. He might have been 38 years old, meaning that he was in that condition from birth. So when he got there, he had to be taken there. And when he left there, he had to be removed from there by someone else. His body is withered, and he's in a dilemma because he can't make it to the water. And he's very superstitious. This guy is very superstitious because he believes that when the water is stirred, he can get in the water and get healed. At least that's what the text lends us to believe. Uh, Let me say that he has little hope. Now, I, I should say to you that the pool of Bethesda, Carolyn and I have been there, uh, it is a... It is a relatively recent excavation, I might add. You can see where the five porches were. And uh, it's, uh, it's really quite an ugly mess right now. Uh, but there is some evidence from the excavation, from the archaeological evidence, that the Pool of Bethesda was associated with the Greek god of healing. Uh, uh, the, the name of that god was Asclepius. Asclepius. And um, Asclepius would have different, there would, this cult would have different locations throughout the land where people could go and get healed. And if you put Asclepius into your computer, you will find a picture of an old man standing with a long beard and a, a a, 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 a cape on or a, a garment on and next to him is a staff with a snake wound up the staff on the, the side and uh, um, uh, the, the, the story goes that when Asclepius was a child the snake came and licked his ears and made him understand and know and hear 
certain diseases and what to do about those diseases. And when after the snake ministered to him in this way, he was able to heal these diseases. And uh, there were different cultic uh, Asclepios cults scattered throughout the land where people could go. And it is believed by some theologians that this, in fact, was one of those places. And there's some archaeological evidence to tell us that. Now, what we see in our own day is we have the caduceus. You see that wherever you go to a medical facility. Uh, you see the staff with the snake wound up the staff. And this is, uh, if, you, uh, if you see an EMT, they have a caduceus patch on their sleeve. If you uh, go to where they sell medicine, you'll see a caduceus. And, and the, by the way, the caduceus is more prevalent in the United States than it is in many other countries. Uh, uh, the symbol of a pagan Greek god becomes the symbol for modern medicine, if you please. And as a result, we see this. And, and so this guy is sitting here by the pool. And he might even be believing in a different God at this point. He might even be believing in a cultic kind of God rather than the God we would think of. And Jesus comes along and sees him. And his attitude is one of despair. Uh, His attitude is one of despair. And Jesus asks him, do you want to get well? (laughs) It kind of makes you smile, doesn't it? You want to say, Jesus, what are you doing? I mean, if he didn't want to get well, what would he be doing here? Uh, and uh, what? When, what no, he's been in this condition for 38 years. Why in the world would you ask him, do you want to get well? Seems like a stupid question. Here is a guy, you know, if it were me and I was taken there, I would say, Put me as close to the water as I can get. See, because once it moves, I'm going to roll myself in. No, no, he's up here on the bank. And uh, I'll try not to fall in the water, by the way. (laughs) He's up here on the bank. And uh, he says, uh, you know, I can't get in. Somebody else gets in ahead of me. So, uh, along with our own culture, he wants to blame somebody else for his predicament, see. And supposing you came along and you said, hey, what's your problem? He says, well, I've been laying here for 38 years and I can't get in the water when it's stirred up. And I say, well, what am I going to say? Am I going to say, well, I'll tell you what, I'll wait here with you till the water stirs again and I'll throw you in. No, no. What I'm going to say is, look, here's five dollars by lunch. And I'm going to go on my way. This guy might have been a common beggar. Uh, Now, that doesn't mean that his condition wasn't his condition. But he, he didn't make himself available to the water the way he might have made himself available to the water. 
and he's discouraged and he's depressed. And Jesus comes along and says, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? Are you prepared to step back into life? Are you prepared to become a person again? Are you prepared to take the responsibilities that are necessary to become a walking, functioning individual in your culture again? You know, I've been there in my spiritual life. I came to know Christ when I was 14, which for me was 24. I, I, I grew up fast. I went to work in a shoe factory when I was 11 years old. I got my Social Security card when I was 11. And uh, I, I worked a swing shift in a shoe factory when I was 11 years old. And uh, at 14, I came to know Christ. And for the first six months or so, I did very well. But after that, I started drifting. And from 14 to 19, we won't talk about the, the specifics because you don't want to know. And I don't want to tell you. Life was not pleasant for me. At 19 years old, one night, I got on my knees by my bed and I said, God, I finally want to get well. See, up until that time, I said to God, God, I feel so bad about that. I'm not going to do that anymore. But I did. Up until that time, I'd say, God, I feel so bad about that. That's not something, God, we, we got to get that out of my life. And, but I didn't. Up until this time, when I was 19, life changed for me because I said, I'm ready. You know what? I think sometimes Jesus has to say to us, are, are you really, do you really want to get well? Or are we just fooling around here? You may be up to debt to your eyeballs and you say, man, I got to get out of this. And Jesus might be saying, what are you willing to do? Are you really wanting? You may be involved in a sin that you say, God, I got to get out of this. And God may be saying to you, do you really, really want to get well? Let me explain to you something. Sanctification is all about the desire to have God's power in your life. And Jesus is asking this guy what seems to be a stupid question. And yet this guy is saying, look, the first essential to receiving the power of God is the intense desire to have it. So there comes a point at which I have to stop fooling around with my Christianity, and I've got to get very serious about it. And I've got to say, this is what I'm going to do, God. I'm ready. I'm ready. And it's at that point that God gave me the miracle for my life to change when I was 19 years old. Now, did everything turn out perfect? No. Were there some things that I still struggled with? Yes. But, the, but I was on a new road after that night. I will never forget it. And, and the result is 
This guy is going to be on a new road. See, the attitude must always be open to the help which God is offering. And when we have that kind of attitude, it's at that point that God is able to do the impossible. What was the impossible? Get up, pick up your bed, and walk. He told this guy to do something he couldn't do. He told this guy to do something that was absolutely impossible for him. But because this is a guy who finally made the decision, I'm ready to step back into life. I'm ready to become a walking man again. I'm ready to do what I have to do. The God of the impossible stepped up and said, I'll help you do it. And he told him to do an impossible thing. And the man, we are told, did precisely that because God's power is released through the believer's obedience. And so I am, I am so certain that the question Jesus asked to this guy is a question he has to ask me periodically because sometimes I'm just playing a game with God and there comes a point at which the games have to stop. So let's take a look then at the potency of the power of Christ. Immediately, immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. By the way, the bed wouldn't be a bed. It would be kind of a rolled up pallet that a guy could pick up and put under his arm and walk off with. Uh, something like you would take uh, backpacking, camping with you. And uh, he began to walk. Here's an important statement. Underline this statement. Now, it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, circle the word cured. It's the Greek word therapeuo, from which we get our English word therapy or therapeutic. Uh, uh, in this case, it's used in a perfect tense, meaning that the cure was certain, it was permanent, it was complete, and it showed, and he showed evidence of the cure. Anybody who looked at him could tell he was cured because he was walking and running about. So they said to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath and it is not permissible to carry your pallet on the Sabbath. I was going to give you a whole bunch of list of things that were crazy things that you couldn't do on Shabbat, Shabbat, the Sabbath. Uh, for example, you couldn't slap a mosquito on your arm on the Sabbath because that would have been an act of work. And so uh, there's tons of others that are really fun to talk about. Uh, so he said... Uh, uh, it is the Sabbath is not permissible. But he answered them, he who made me well, we've seen that word before, iomai, from which we get our English word iodine. Uh, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said you pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in the place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. And the man went away and told the Jews, It was Jesus who made him well. So Jesus finds him in the temple says, Stop sinning now. And the guy says, 
hey, guys, it was him over there. I just remembered. It was him over there. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing things on the Sabbath. Uh, persecute means to drive away. The Greek word is dioko, means to drive away. They're trying to get him out of the area. They don't want his influence. And by the way, let me point out that Jesus always taught that it was all right to do good things on the Sabbath, like healing a crippled man. Uh, That was a good thing to do. Therefore, Jesus did not keep the rules of the Sabbath the way the Pharisees wanted him to keep them. But he answered them, Jesus answered them and said, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, the Jews were seeking also to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. See, the Jew of that day would never use such intimate terms with God as my father. They would never do that. And it was offensive to them to do that. Jesus knew this guy's situation. And when Jesus said to the guy, do you want to get well? He knew his heart. See, that's the thing I forget sometimes. When, when God says to me, you know, we, we need to deal with that sin or we need to deal with that thing, whatever it is. Uh, I forget that God knows what's going on in here. He knows what I'm thinking. He knows what I'm feeling. He knows my attitude. He knows all about it. And Jesus knew all about this guy, and he knows about mine as well. So the restoration of the man's condition is done. The restoration of his condition. He is healed. He is cured permanently, once and for all, immediately, completely. This man believed the word of Christ to be accompanied by power. And so he immediately, he didn't ask any questions. He didn't get theological. He didn't get philosophical. He didn't argue. He got up, picked up his bed, and started walking, the Bible says. And then there is this resentment on the religious leaders, on the part of the religious leaders, um, they they don't want anything to do with Jesus at this point. They're seeing the power of God, and they don't like it. And uh, uh, a thing for us to remember is when God's power is demonstrated, there are always those who react to it. When God's power is demonstrated, there are always those who react to it. So Jesus said to the guy, do you really want to get well? Maybe he's saying that to you today. Jesus says to the guy, I want you to do the impossible. Maybe God is asking you to do the impossible. You know, if you're on the search team, if you're one of our elders, you might think God is asking you to do the impossible. In what you've been through, you might be saying God's asking us to do the impossible. God is the God of the impossible. And we rely on that. Uh, Ruth Graham once said, we are to take care of the possible and let God take care of the impossible. See, I think sometimes we see the impossible and we're not willing to admit that God did the impossible. 
once there was a town that was a dry town, no alcohol in this town. And suddenly a guy came in and he decided he was going to build a tavern. And so he started building this tavern in this town. And the church down the street got a bunch of people together and they started praying that God would intervene. And sure enough, halfway through the construction of this tavern, lightning struck it and it burned to the ground. So the tavern owner got a lawyer and he sued the church. And the church got a lawyer and said, wait a minute, we're not responsible for that. It was lightning. So the judge on the first day of the hearing said this, no matter how this case comes out, one thing is clear. The tavern owner believes in prayer and the Christians do not. When you go to communion this morning, I would ask you to ask yourself, am I really ready? Is sanctification part of what God is doing in my life? Am I ready for that? Or am I just saying, no, I, I, I'll blame somebody else or, or I'll hold on for a little longer or maybe I have a different motivation for doing this thing. Am I really ready? to make the decision to get closer to God than I've ever been before. The second question you should ask yourself is, if God asks me to do the impossible, will I take a shot at it? If he says, do what I think I can't do, will I do it anyway? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the instruction of your word. Thank you, Father, for the healing of this man and the truth that we learn from it. Thank you, Father, that you are the God of the impossible. If that were not true, we would not be here in the room. If that were not true, the stars would not be hanging in the sky. If that were not true, the sun would not show. Father, you are the God of the impossible. And you are the one who is able to do what none of us are able to do. And so we ask you, Father, to draw us to yourself. Bring us closer, ever so closer so that we have the first-hand power, like the first nail on the magnet, so that we are able to serve you and serve you well. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.